Chapter 4, Part 2 of Kangaroo by D. H. Lawrence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Chapter 4, Jack and Jazz, Part 2. On Sunday morning, Jack asked Summers to walk with him across to the Truhillas. That is, they walked to one of the ferry stations, and took the ferry steamer to Mossman's Bay. Jack was a late riser on Sunday morning. The Summers, who were ordinary half-past seven people, rarely saw any signs of life in work before half-past ten on the Sabbath. Then it was Jack in trousers and shirt, with his shirt-sleeves rolled up, having a look at his dahlias, while Vicky prepared breakfast. So the two men did not get a start till eleven o'clock. Jack rolled along easily beside the smaller, quieter Summers. They were an odd couple, ill-assorted. In a colonial way, Jack was handsome, well-built, with strong, heavy limbs. He filled out his expensively tailored suit, and looked a man who might be worth anything from five hundred to five thousand a year. The only lean, delicate part about him was his face. Seeing him from behind, his broad shoulders and loose, erect carriage, and brown nape of the neck, and you expected a good square face to match. He turned, and his long, lean, rather pallid face really didn't seem to belong to his strongly animal body. For the face was an animal at all, except perhaps in a certain slow, dark, lingering look of the eyes, which reminded one of some animal or other, some patient, enduring animal, with an indomitable but naturally passive courage. Summers, in a light suit of thin cloth, made by an Italian tailor, and an Italian hat just looked a foreign sort of little bloke, but a gentleman. The chief difference was that he looked sensitive all over. His body, even its clothing, and his feet, even his brown shoes, all equally sensitive with his face. Whereas Jack seemed strong and insensitive in the body, only his face vulnerable. His feet might have been made of leather all the way through, tramping with an insentient tread whereas Summers put down his feet delicately, as if they had a life of their own, mindful of each step of contact with the earth. Jack strode along. Summers seemed to hover along. There was decision in both of them, but, oh, of such different quality. And each had a certain admiration of the other, and a very definite tolerance. Jack just barely tolerated the quiet finesse of Summers and Summers tolerated with difficulty Jack's facetious familiarity and hardiness. Calcutt met quite a number of people he knew, and greeted them all heartily. "'Hello, Bill, old man. How's things? New boots pinching yet, Antony? Happy sort of look about you this morning. Right-o. So long, Antony. Different girl again. Boy, go on. Sydney's full of your sisters. All right. Goodbye, old chap.' the same breezy intimacy with all of them. In the moment they had passed by, they didn't exist for him any more than the, the gull that had curved across in the air. They seemed to appear like phantoms and disappear in the same instant, like phantoms. Like so many flying Dutchmen, the Australian's acquaintances seemed to steer slap through his consciousness and were gone on the wind. What was the consecutive thread in the man's feelings? Not his feeling for any particular human beings, that was evident. His friends, even his loves, were just a series of disconnected, isolated moments in his life, 
summers always came again upon this gap in the other man's continuity he felt that if he knew jack for twenty years and then went away jack would say friend of mine englishman rum sort of bloke but not a bad sort dunno where he's hanging out just now somewhere on the surface of the old humming top i suppose the only consecutive thing was that facetious attitude which was the attitude of taking things as they come perfected a sort of ironical stoicism yet the man had a sort of passion and a passionate identity but not what summers called human and threaded on this ironical stoicism they found truhella dressed and expecting them truhella was a coal and wood merchant on the north side he lived quite near the wharf had his sheds at the side of the house and in the front a bit of garden running down to the practically tideless bay of the harbor across the bit of blue water were many red houses and new wide streets of single cottages seaside like disappearing rather forlorn over the brow of the low hill william james or jas jazz as jack called him was as quiet as ever the three men sat on a bench just above the brown rocks of the water's edge in the lovely sunshine and watched the big fairy steamer slip in and discharge its stream of summer-dressed passengers and embark another stream watched the shipping of the middle harbor away to the right and the boats loitering on the little bay in front a motor-boat was sweeping at a terrific speed like some broom sweeping the water past the little round fort away in the open harbor and two tall white sailing-boats all wing and no body were tacking across the pale blue mouth of the bay the inland sea of the harbor was all bustling with sunday morning animation and yet there seemed space and loneliness the low coffee-brown cliffs opposite too low for cliffs looked as silent and as aboriginal as if white men had never come the little girl gladys came out shyly summers now noticed that she wore spectacles hello kitty said jack come here and make a footstool of your uncle and see what your aunt vicky's been thinking of come on then amble up this road he took her on his knee and fished out of his pocket a fine sort of hat-band that victoria had contrived with ribbon and artificial flowers and wooden beads gladys sat for a moment or two shyly on her uncle's knee and he held her there as if she were a big pillow and he was scarcely conscious of holding her stepfather sat exactly as if the child did not exist or were not present it was neutrality brought to a remarkable pitch only summers seemed actually aware that the child was a little human being and to him she seemed so absent that he didn't know what to make of her rose came out bringing beer and sausage rolls and the girl vanished away again seemed to evaporate summers felt uncomfortable and wondered what he had been brought for you know cornwall do you said william james the cornish sing-song still evident in his australian speech he looked with his light gray inscrutable eyes at summers i lived for a time near padstow said summers padstow i have been to padstow said william james and they talked for a while of the bleak lonely northern coast of cornwall the black huge cliffs with the gulls flying away below and the sea boiling and the wind blowing in huge volleys and the black cornish nights with nothing but the violent weather outside oh i remember it i remember it said william james 
though i was a half-starved youngster on a bit of a farm out there you know for everlasting chasing half a dozen heifers from the cliffs where the beggars wanted to fall over and kill themselves and hunting a dozen sheep among the gorse bushes and wading up to my knees in mud most part of the year and then in summer in the dry times having to haul water for a mile over the rocks in a wagon because the well had run dry and at the end of it my father gave me one new suit in two years and sixpence a week ay that was a life for you i suppose if i was there still he'd be giving me my keep and five shillin a week if he could open his heart as wide as two half crowns which i'm doubting very much you have money out here at least said summers but there was a great fascination for me in cornwall fascination and where do you find the fascination in a little wesleyan chapel of a sunday night and a girl with her father waiting for her with a strap if she's not in by nine o'clock fascination did you say it had a great fascination for me magic a magic in the atmosphere all the fairy tales they'll tell you said william james looking at the other man with a smile of slow ridicule why you didn't go and believe them did ye more or less i could more easily have believed them there than anywhere else i've been ay no doubt and that shows what sort of a place it be a lot of dumb silly nonsense he stirred on his seat impatiently at any rate you're well out of it you're set up all right here said summers who was secretly amused the other man did not answer for some time maybe i am he said at last i'm not pining to go back and work for my father i tell you on a couple of pasties and a lot of abuse no after that i like you to tell me what's wrong with australia i'm sure i don't know said summers probably nothing at all again william james was silent he was a short thick man with a little felt hat that sat over his brow with a half humorous flap he had his knees wide apart and his hands clasped between them and he looked for the most part down at the ground when he did cock up his eye at summers it was with a look of suspicion marked with humor and troubled with a certain desire the man was restless desirous craving something heaven knows what you thinking of settling out here then are you he asks no said summers but i don't say i won't it depends william james fidgeted tapping his feet rapidly on the ground though his body was silent he was not like jack he too was sensitive all over though his body looked so thick it was silently alive and his feet were still uneasy he was young too with a youth that troubled him and his nature was secretive maybe treacherous it was evident jack only half liked him you've got the money you can live where you like and go where you like said william james looking up at summers well i might do the same if i cared to do it i could live quietly on what i've got whether here or in england summers recognized the cornishman in this you could very easily have as much as i've got he said laughing the thing is what's the good of a life of idleness said william james what's the good of a life of work laughed summers shrewdly with quick gray eye Truhella looked at the other man to see if he were laughing at him yet i expect you've got some purpose in coming to australia said william james a trifle challenging 
Maybe I had, or have. Maybe it was just whim. Again, the other man looked shrewdly to see if it were the truth. You aren't investing money out here, are you? No, I've none to invest. Because if you was, I'd advise you not to. And he spat into the distance and kept his hands clasped tight. All this time Jack sat silent, and as if unconcerned, but listening attentively. "'Australians have always been croakers,' he said now. "'What do you think of this Irish business?' asked William James. "'I? I really don't think much at all. "'I don't feel Ireland is my job, personally. "'If I had to say, offhand, what I'd do myself, "'why, if I could, I'd just leave the Irish to themselves as they want "'and let them wipe each other out or kiss and make friends as they please. "'They bore me, rather.' And what about the empire? That, again, isn't my job. I'm only one man, and I know it. But personally, I'd say to India and Australia and all of them the same. If you want to stay in the empire, stay. If you want to go out, go. And suppose they went out. That's their affair. Supposing Australia said she was coming out of the empire and governing herself, and only keeping a sort of entente with Britain. What do you think she'd make of it? By the looks of things, I think she'd make a howling mess of it. Yet it might do her good if she were thrown entirely on her own resources. You've got to have something to keep you steady. England has really kept the world steady so far, as steady as it's been. That's my opinion. Now, she's not keeping it very steady, and the world's sick of being bossed, anyhow. Seems to me... You may as well sink or swim on your own resources. Perhaps we're too likely to find ourselves sinking. Then you'll come to your senses after you've sunk for the third time. What about England? Cling to England again, you mean? No, I don't. I mean, you can't put the brotherhood of man on a wage basis. That's what a good many people say here, put in Jack. You don't trust socialism, then? said Jazz in a quiet voice. What sort of socialism? Trades unionism? Soviet? Yes, any. I really don't care about politics. Politics is no more than your country's housekeeping. If I had to swallow my whole life up in housekeeping, I wouldn't keep house at all. I'd sleep under a hedge. Same with a country than politics. I'd rather have no country than be gulfed in politics and social stuff. I'd rather have the moon for a motherland. Jazz was silent for a time, contemplating his knuckles. And that, he said, is how the big majority of Australians feel. And that's why they care nothing about Australia. It's cruel to the country. Anyhow, no sort of politics will help the country, said Summers. If it won't, then nothing will, retorted Jazz. So you'd advise us all to be like seven-tenths of us here, not care a blooming hang about anything except your dinner and which horse gets in? asked Jack, not without sarcasm. Now Richard was silent, driven into a corner. Why, he said, there's just this difference. The bulk of Australians don't care about Australia. That is, you say they don't. And why don't they? Because they care about nothing at all neither in earth below or heaven above. They just blankly don't care about anything, and they live in defiance, a sort of slovenly defiance of care of any sort, 
human or inhuman, good or bad. If they've got one belief left, now the war is safely over. It's a dull, rock-bottom belief in obstinately not caring, not caring about anything. It seems to me they think it manly, the only manliness, not to care, not to think, not to attend to life at all, but just to tramp blankly on from moment to moment and over the edge of death without carrying a straw, the final manliness. The other two men listened in silence, the distant colonial silence that hears the voice of the old country passionately speaking against them. But if they're not to care about politics, what are they to care about? asked Jazz in his small, insinuating voice. There was a moment's pause. Then Jack added his question. Do you yourself really care about anything, Mr. Summers? Richard turned and looked him for a moment in the eyes. And then, Knowing the two men were trying to corner him, he said coolly, "'Why, yes, I care supremely.' "'About what?' Jack's question was soft as a drop of water, falling into water, and Richard sat struggling with himself. "'That,' he answered, "'you either know or don't know. And if you don't know, it would only be words my trying to tell.' There was a silence of checkmate." "'I'm afraid for myself I don't know,' said Jack. "'But Summers did not answer, "'and the talk, rather lamely, was turned off to other things. "'The two men went back to Murdoch Street rather silent, "'thinking their own thoughts. "'Jack only blurted once, "'What do you make of Jazz, then?' "'I like him. "'He lives by himself and keeps himself pretty dark, "'which is his nature. "'He's a cleverer man,' Then you take him for, figures things out in a way that surprises me. And he's better than a detective for getting to know things. He's got one or two Cornish pals downtown, you see, and they tip one another the wink. They're like the Irish in many ways, and they're not uncommonly unlike a chink. I always feel as if Jazz had got a bit of Chinese blood in him. That's what makes the women like him, I suppose. But do the women like him? Rose does. I believe he'd make any woman like him, if he laid himself out to do it. Got that quiet way with him, you know, and a sly sort of touch the harp gently. That's what they like on the quiet. But he's the sort of chap I don't exactly fancy mixing my broth with and drinking of the same can with. Summers laughed at the avowal of antipathy between the two men. They were not home till two o'clock. Summers found Harriet looking rather plaintive. "'You've been a long time,' she said. "'What did you do?' "'Just talked. "'What about?' "'Politics.' "'And did you like them?' "'Yes, quite well. "'And have you promised to see them again today?' "'Who?' "'Why, any of them. "'The Calcutts.' "'No.' "'Oh, they're becoming rather an institution.' "'You like them, too?' "'Yes, they're all right. "'But I don't want to spend my life with them. "'After all,' That sort of people isn't exactly my sort. And I thought you used to pretend it wasn't yours. It isn't. But then no sort of people is my sort. Yes, it is. Any sort of people, so long as they make a fuss of you. Surely they make an even greater fuss of you. Do they? It's you they want, not me. And you go as usual, like a lamb to the slaughter. Bah, he said. Yes, bah. You should hear yourself bleat. 
I'll listen, he said. But Harriet was becoming discontented. They had been in their house only six weeks, and she had had enough of it. Yet it was paid for three months at four guineas a week. And they were pretty short of money, and would be for the rest of the year. He had already overdrawn. Yet she began to suggest going away from Sydney. She felt humiliated in that beastly little Murdoch Street. "'What did I tell you?' he retorted. "'The very look of it humiliated me. "'Yet you wanted it, and you said you liked it. "'I did like it for the fun of it. "'But now there's all this intimacy and neighboring. "'I just can't stand it. "'I just can't. "'But you began it.' "'No, I didn't. "'You began it. "'And your beastly sweetness and gentleness with such people. "'I wish you kept a bit of it for me.' He went away in silence, knowing the uselessness of argument. And to tell the truth, he was feeling also a revulsion from all this neighboring, as Harriet called it, and all this talk. It was usually the same. He started by holding himself aloof. Then, gradually, he let himself get mixed in. And then he had revulsions. And today was one of his revulsions. Coming home from Mossman's Bay he had felt himself dwindle to a cipher in Jack's consciousness. Then, last evening, there had been all this fervor and protestation, and this morning all the cross-examination by Truhilla. And he, Summers, had plainly said all he thought. And now, as he walked home with Jack, Jack had no more use for him than the stump of cigar which he chewed between his lips, merely because he forgot to spit it away. Which state of affairs did not go at all well with our friend's sense of self-importance? Therefore, when he got home, his eyes opened once more to the delicacy of Harriet's real beauty, which he knew as none else knew it after twelve years of marriage. And once more he realized her gay, undying courage, her wonderful fresh zest in front of life. And all these other little people seemed so common in comparison, so common. He stood still with astonishment, wondering how he could have come to betray the essential reality of his life, and Harriet's, to the common use of these other people with their watchful, vulgar wills. That scene of last evening, what right had a fellow like Calcutt to be saying these things to him? What right had he to put his arm around his, Richard's shoulder, and give him a tight hug? Summers winced to think of it. And now Calcutt had gone off with his Victoria in Sunday clothes to some other outing. Anything was as good as anything else. Why not? A gulf there was between them, really, between the Summers and the Calcutts. And yet the easy way Calcutt flung a flimsy rope of intimacy across the gulf and was embracing the pair of his neighbors in midair, as it were, without a grain of common foothold. And Summers let himself be embraced. So he sat pale and silent and mortified in the kitchen that evening, thinking of it all and wishing himself far away in Europe. Oh, how I detest this treacly democratic Australia, he said. It swamps one with a sort of common emotion like trickle. And before one knows where one is, one is caught like a fly on a flypaper, in one mess with all the other buzzers. How I hate it! I want it to go away. It isn't Australia, said Harriet. Australia's lonely. It's just the people. And it isn't even the people, if you would only keep your proper distance and not make yourself cheap to them and get into messes. No, it's the country. It's in the air. I want to leave it. But he was not very emphatic. 
Harriet wanted to go down to the south coast, of which she had heard from Victoria. Think, she said, it must be lovely there, with the mountain behind and steep hills and blackberries, and lovely little bays with sand. There'll be no blackberries. It's end of June, which is their midwinter. But there'll be other things. Let's do that, and never mind the beastly money for this pokey touristin. They've asked us to go with them to Mullumbibby in a fortnight. Shall we wait till then and look? Harriet sat in silence for some moments. We might, she said reluctantly. She didn't want to wait. But what Victoria had told her of Mullumbimby, the township on the south coast, so appealed to her that she decided to abide by her opportunity. And then, curiously enough, for the next week the neighbors hardly saw one another. It was as if the same wave of revulsion had passed over both sides of the fence. They had fleeting glimpses of Victoria as she went about the house. And when he could, Jack put in an hour at his garden in the evening, tidying it up finally for the winter. But the weather was bad. It rained a good deal, there were fogs in the morning, and foghorns on the harbor. And the summers kept their doors continually blank and shut. End of chapter 4 Jack and Jazz, Part 2